Welcome, everyone, to the Top Producer Podcast. Uh, I am Paul Nefer, your host, and today we're going to have a conversation with John Nalavica, and I probably messed it up, John. I, 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 so for everybody out there, how do you pronounce your last name? It's pronounced Nalavica. Uh, I was close. I was yeah, close. Yeah. So, okay. And you're with uh, uh, Sterling Marketing, or yeah, Sterling Marketing, and you're you, you used to be in Kansas City, but now you're based in Vail, Oregon. So for the people out there that don't know where Vail is, or Nyssa, or Ontario, why don't you explain to the people out there exactly where Vail, Oregon is? We we are just merely on the on the Oregon Idaho border. We're right not too far from the Snake River. Yep, yep. And you so, got uh, Payette, and you got Caldwell, and Napa, and and. And of course, that whole Boise area has grown like a weed in the last twenty oh years. Oh boy, it has! It hasn't come to Vail, I don't think. But no, uh, it it's and that's and that's okay because if we want to go to Boise, we can do that. But uh, well, we can be out here by ourselves if we want to too. So exactly. Well, we always like to start off the the podcast with uh, your background, where you grew up in college, and what you did before you got associated with Sterling Marketing, and and how you got associated with that. So let's go ahead and start with that. I, I grew up in uh, in Sheridan, Wyoming, and uh, I went to have a, uh, a BS degree in animal science from the University of Idaho, which I got in 1976. And then I I went out. I basically spent quite a few years just on ranches, big big ranches in Nevada and Wyoming, California. I managed a, a, ran a, a ranch in Northern California, and then I worked on on big. Big off big cattle ranches in in Nevada and Wyoming. I worked on the Padlock Ranch up in Sheridan. I I, I was going to ask if you were on the Padlock Ranch. Uh, yeah. You know, I've I've actually been to the Padlock Ranch two or three times. Uh, the Farm Financial Standards Council had their annual meeting there back oh. in two thousand and I'm going to say eighteen, and we were at the, the little conference center they had there, right on the Tongue River, and that was a great. I love that area. It's yeah. I worked on it when I worked. It, both times I worked there, I worked up on the on the Crow Indian Reservation, which they lease yep. a large share of that. Yep. And so I just saw I'm on a on a task force, a national task force for we're looking into uh, looking on on coming up with different ways to price feeder cattle and calves based on genetic performance. So so Trey Patterson, who yep. manages the padlock, was also on is on that task force. So. He and I were able to visit here a couple of weeks ago. We had that meeting in Denver. So we yeah, kind Steven, of caught up on Stephen Severe was their longtime uh, CFO and he was the one on the on the um uh farm financial standards uh, yeah. council and he just retired, I think, two years ago. I think that sounds about right. So uh, but Sheridan's beautiful country. I mean that uh you got uh, the mountains there and and so on and so forth. It's one of the prettier parts of Wyoming, in my opinion. No, I, yeah, we, we, you know, I, I'm not big on the winters there anymore, but I'm not, I'm not too big on, on winters anywhere anymore. <laughs> it, uh, so then I went to, so my wife and I got married in 1981. She's from Nevada. Her, her family ranched in Nevada. And so we decided, or I guess jointly, we decided that maybe I need to do something different besides buckaroo around the country. And so I went back to graduate school at the University of Nevada, and I got a master's degree in uh, in ag-, ag econ. And then from there, I went to I was offered a position at in 
ERS in Washington, D.C., the Economic Research Service of USDA. So I took that position and we moved to Washington, D.C. Lucky uh, you. <laughs> yeah, well, we were there for three years before I got cynical enough to, to leave. So, <laughs> and then uh, I, I was, then at that point, I was offered, I was offered a, a fellowship to do a, a, a doctorate at Oregon State University, as well as the position of, of managing their uh, market news and information uh, project, which was at that time was mandated by state law in Oregon. Hmm. They had to they had to uh, do a program to offer market news and and uh, information to ag all agricultural, all farmers and ranchers in the state of Oregon. So I managed that. I did not do a PhD. And without a PhD at that time, you could not stay. I was being a campus, on campus as a uh, extension specialist, you had to have a PhD. So I had to think what I was gonna do if I wasn't gonna do that. And at that, so about that time, Bill Helming, who had the Helming Group in Kansas City, Bill called and said, would you like to come back and talk to me about being my director of research? So I did, and he offered me a position. So I took that, and we moved to Kansas City. And then, and, and that was in 1988. And then in, 19, in 1990, the very end of 1990, another Ron Drain, another gentleman, and I, we decided to, to buy Sterling Marketing from his from his father, and uh, we basically changed the scope of the company from packing packing plant management consulting to what, what I do, what we do now, which is uh, market advisory and consulting. I okay. bought, we started at the in January of 91, and then I bought Ron share of the country, company in 1994, and then we moved to Eastern Oregon, and this has been here ever since, and doing the same thing. I've got clients across the entire, beef, both beef and pork supply chains, from production all the way up into, uh, into, into, I don't have any retailers, but retail distribution. Okay. So I'm, pack, I'm you know, packers, processors, feedlots, uh, chain restaurants, quick service restaurants, basically, you know, cover all aspects of it. So what 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 specifically are the services then that you provide to to your clients? I do. Uh, I do supply and demand analysis, and, and I put out uh, forecasts on for supplies. But probably what the bigger share of what I do as well, and then in addition, and and with that, I also forecast most of the of the of the subprimal cuts for both beef and pork on a monthly monthly forecast going out two years that I that I send to clients at the beginning of every month. All the grinding meat, the ground beef. Uh, the, the grind, grinding beef, like I said, and the trim, and anything that would go into, you know, the well as all if, as well as you know, you know, sausage and and yep. processed further processed products, and then but two of the two of the bigger two of the probably more more what I consider to be pretty important to analyzing the industry and that I do spend quite a bit of time on is capacity. In the you know packing plant capacity, 
and uh, margins across the industry. And I put out what I call a profit tracker every week, which has all the, which has margins for both the beef and pork industries for, you know, the, the packers and, and production feedlot. And, you know, we've certainly have seen over the last three years, you know, since the pandemic started through now, you know, when the pandemic started, it was like the packer margin was really high and the, you know, the cow-calf was not so high. And then now it's sort of flip-flopped a little bit. Uh, is it getting back to sort of an equilibrium right now? Or where, where are we at in that process, at least on the beef side? Well, the, the situation now on the beef side is that with these, as these supplies of cattle with, to be, as a result of liquidation the previous two years, our, our cattle numbers have, have declined significantly into this year. And as a result of that, the, the packers are, are paying more. There's more competition for the cattle. And the packers are paying more. And consequently, we've taken those margins that were back in, in, in 2020 and 2021, which people thought, you know, were just out of, you know, you know totally out of, out of place. And we've taken a, you know, what was a $500 per head margin in the packing plant. We've now brought that down to losing 50 to a hundred dollars. Yeah. Yeah. So as they, as the cost of the cattle has increased significantly. So it's kind of come back to a normal cyclical situation with regard to margins. Yeah. Essentially we had excess of margins back then. Now we don't have excess of margins for anybody. Is that sort of an accurate statement? Yeah, the, the the feedlots have been doing quite well, obviously, because of the the demand for the cattle and, and competition. But at the same time, the feedlots have been contending with these this high cost of gain because of these grain prices, which have now started to come down. But for the better part of this year, and since last, you know, a year ago, a year ago, all the way up until right now. These feed costs have been record high, and cost of gains been record high. Yeah. So you you've combined, you know, you know, extremely high cost of gain with the high price of feeder cattle because of of you know sharply reduced numbers, and therefore pushed our break evens up to a record high. And but because they're the cattle have been in short supply, the finished cattle and the packers have competed and and paid more for the cattle, then we've had pretty good margins in the feedlot until about the last week when the when the, the price of the cattle came down. So it's been a it's kind of been a mixed bag, but it's not it's not one that would be, you know, to me, I was not unexpected. I knew we were going to get to this point. And and the concern I have now is with these as we go into next year. And the cattle that were placed in the feedlot at these high at these high cost and high break evens that will come out during the first and second quarter of next year, you know, our whole our whole market now and the whole uh, you know condition of the market will be dependent upon demand. We, you know, mm -hmm. we know where the supply is at, and we know that you know, if you want to feed cattle or you want, and if the packer wants to buy the cattle and, and fill that, that slaughter capacity, then, then they're going to have to pay for them. But the problem is, will demand sustain that? And, you know, I think that's very questionable at this point, but, you know, we've had, we've had very, very strong beef demand 
And that, you know, that is one difference between now and the previous cyclical low, which was in 2014 and 15, our demand was not anywhere near as, as good as it is right now. But, you know, with record high prices, you know, sustaining that demand becomes another issue. Yep. Yeah. Now, on the packing side, we've seen some, uh, ind- uh, I'm going to call them independent um, cooperatives, associations, uh, groups, whatever you want to call it, try to bring on a couple new uh, packing houses, uh, one in Idaho, one in Nebraska, and so on. Is is How is that going, or what do you see the, the trend in that area? Well, with regard to the the plants that are that are being built by existing companies who are in the in the industry, and of course the one over here in Idaho is is the True West plant, which was built by Agri Beef. Yeah, it it's it's up and running. It will be. I have no doubt in my mind that that will be a that will be a successful plant, and that has a lot to do with you know who owns it, and you know, and they've been in the industry for a long time. Uh, agri-beef so you know it's it'll be fine the the one that's going to the the new cow plant that's going to be built in missouri by american foods group which will open at the beginning of 2025 it will be successful because that's a company that's been around too for a long time they have a lot of experience in the industry and knowledge i the, the concern i have are with these smaller plants that that felt the need to, you know these co-ops and, and certainly not the sustainable beef plant in Nebraska because they have a pretty good partner with Walmart. Mm-hmm. But, but there are other plants around that, you know, you know, I really question as they come online and the supplies of cattle are still tight, you know, can they, you know, with, with debt, can they come in and compete? And, and it's not just the cattle too. The other, the other, the other part of the equation is labor in these plants. And there's a lot of competition for labor, and it's not very easy to to uh, you know to have a uh, an operating plant every day that you know that you've got a labor force that that is there every every single day you know for for two shifts, and yep. so you know the competition for that, and you know you know so it's kind of and the cost or so our cost of labor and our cost of of the cost of operating the plants, the, the operating cost has increased pretty sharply, significantly over the last, you know, two or three years. And then if you put on top of that, you know, debt yeah. that has to be covered, then, then you have a, you know, you have a real challenge in today's, in today's market. Yeah. So I, you know, the, you know, I don't, I'm not, I'm, I just, I just have that. I guess I can leave it at that. I just feel like that there's, there's, you know, there may be more challenge that will be presented to these new plants than what they realize. And, and, and I understand, you know, the government is, is throwing money at this and USDA is throwing money at these plants and, you know, that's all well and good, but at the end of the day, you still have to cover all those operating costs and have the, have the labor that's in that plant every day to, to, you know, to manage, run the plant. Right, right. Now, um, is there, I guess, over on the cow-calf side, you know, that they've been liquidating, 
you know, the herd because of the drought and so on. Now we seem to see some of that drought starting to dissipate in some of those key areas. Are we going to see a little bit of an expansion coming on in, in the cow herd now? That takes two or three years really to, to cycle its way through. But uh, are, are you starting to see a little bit of retainage of heifers to turn them into cows and so on? We're not seeing any of that, Paul. And that's that's the other part of the of the uh, you know the analysis and the and the conversation too is that the 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 uh, herd building will be very very slow this time around. Okay. And we're even seeing like the heifers and I, you know, I I question the most recent the October. Well, we've got another catalog feed report comes out today, but but there was one the October report that came out the October one report I questioned you know, the, the number of cattle that the, they say is on feed. But, but you know, having said that, there was also an increase, there was an increase in the number of heifers. So heifers that would, that in this year's calf crop that would have potentially been replacement heifers are not going to be replacement heifers. They went to the feedlot. Hmm. And so, or they'll be, or they're being held and backgrounded to go into the feedlot in the first quarter. I, I, I just seriously doubt if there'll be very many of those, you know, that will be held and, and as replacements and bred next year. So if you start, and I, you know, my, what I'm looking at is that we'll, we probably, you know, in my analysis and my numbers, I've got more the, the, the heifer retention picking up next year. Well, so you breed those, so those heifers in the 2024 Half crop, you breed them in 25, you calve them in 26. Yeah, you don't begin to see any production until 27, 2027 at the earliest. Yeah, yeah. so you're four years away at, at a minimum. So, does that lead us to believe that that pricing will still stay pretty strong because of the lack of supply? Or, and again, you've mentioned unlike 1415, the demand's still there. So, as long as the demand's there. The pricing should stay up. Is is that sort of a good analysis, or am I reading that wrong? No, that's that's the you know that's the eighty four dollar question. Is that you know will demand remain as strong as it, as it has been coming into this into twenty twenty three? And uh, you know it's been interesting because typically, you know when you have when you have high beef prices, you you know we've always looked at the total meat supply and from the demand standpoint looked at all meats and if beef prices were were very high in the retail meat case then people walked to the other end of the case and they bought chicken and, and pork right that's really not been the case you know this year and you know i was you know we really didn't pick up any real uh increase in pork sales and pork demand until july and it fizzled out by the time we got to you know the middle of september so there seems to be a you know a little some change in the in the demand structure there with regard to you know if beef prices are high then we'll you can't make the assumption that people will necessarily go buy go buy pork you know tenderloins or 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 loin chops pork chops or whatever it might be or chicken now it's kind of changed it's kind of started to pick up a little bit now as as we've come into the holidays particularly with these high you know these continued high beef prices, but uh, 
you know, you know, the pork and the chicken is there, and and the pork industry has not had a very good very good year either this year, with the with the margins to the packers and the processors, and again the labor cost is is uh, the cost of running those plants, and their margins have been probably as bad as they've ever been for an extended period of time this year. So it's kind of the entire you know, red meat, red meat and poultry complex, really. Yeah. 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 So yeah, let's spend a little bit of time on, on the hog side. So uh, is anybody in the hog industry making money? Uh, the processors are now have turned, their margins have turned positive and are, and are in the black. And, but you've got a, you've got a, a you know, a producer who's losing money and you know one thing that happened to the producers back in 2020 when these plants were shut down in the in the in May April and May of 2020 as a result of COVID and shut down they actually had they were shut down for a period and then when they came back online they were you know operating significantly slower than they than they yep. you know typically did and that that created. Probably the the biggest hard the largest hardship to to fair to finish operations as you know that I recall anyway, and uh, because as we all know in a fair finish production operation, the market hogs go out and feeder pigs come in, yep. and that that's a very very you know tight balance. Yep. And when you're not selling, when a plant shut down is not buying those market hogs that are finished and ready to go, then there's no space for the for the feeder pigs to come in. And you know, it it raised really truly raised havoc with with hog production in this country. And uh and I don't and that it left a, you know, that's a that's a memory that in producers' minds that's not gonna you know, go away very quickly. Also, consequently, they're not, they're, they have had no incentive to expand herds. Right. And, and I think that's going to go well into next year. And, you know, they're just simply not going to get into that, into that kind of a wreck again. So, you know, but they made a little bit of money when these, and, you know, and, but, and I think that there was the idea of, well, you know, these producers, these, these farm finish operations are making money now. They'll expand their well, no, because back in the back of their mind was still that that 2020 time period that when they when they lost, they not only lost a lot of money, they had to make decisions which were not very easy. So yeah, yeah, when you have to euthanize a whole bunch of pigs that you yeah. can't you can't uh, can't bring to market. Um, now, is is the um, over on the Packers side is it seems like I, I know I've I read you know Tyson is not doing very well uh, now that's a large uh, Packer and so on JBS and so on are, are and those are publicly traded companies um, is 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 on the hog side are they in worse shape as far as being a Packer versus the beef side or or are they sort of in equilibrium. Uh... It might be a it might be a push. I I think as we came into, I think prior to coming into the fourth quarter of this year, the third quarter, 
the tail end of the third quarter, I think the pork processors were probably in, in worse shape than, than beef. But now that with the beef margins turning very, very negative, you know, it, it may be a push. It's it, because, because neither one of them are very, very, you know, this has been a tough year. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think one thing that's going to happen and, you know, and on the beef side anyways, that, you know, you know, we look at this, uh, capacity and we have we have more than enough capacity to to you know slaughter the the, the livestock the, the cattle that we got and uh you know it's it's and i and i it kind of it bothers me somewhat when when they're when i pick up something and read that and see the statement we don't have enough capacity in the beef packing industry but what that does is it encourages people who don't really know the numbers or look at it or have any access to that or, or the ability to analyze that, you know, well, it leads to this situation. Well, we need to go build a packing plant then. Yeah. And, and the capacity will, is going to be consolidated and we're going to, this, this, this situation of overcapacity is going to be squared away. And I, I have no doubt in my mind. And, and part of that will come through not, not uh, operating on Saturdays. I mean, they barely have enough, you know, labor or cattle, either one, to operate on a, even a half of Saturday now. So, so I think, I think Saturday, Saturday kill days are going to go out of the, just go away. And, yeah. and we'll basically run these plants on five-day work weeks. But the other thing too is on the on the beef side, we've got, uh, and this is particularly true in the last, you know, the last probably ten years, is there's the packers are doing more and more value added further processing in the plant, as opposed to putting, you know, uh, primals or or grind and putting them in a combo and sending them to a further processor. They, you know, they've taken on that function themselves. That's truly where the margin is. Yeah, yeah. In the packing plant. So, you know, I think there's going to be an alignment of that of that further processing capacity and the slaughter capacity, and align those two two ends of the plant and start and get those operationally, you know, more aligned with each other. Instead of operating a plant on well, we've got X amount of kill capacity, we can we can kill 3000 head a day. So we need, we need to operate, we need to operate the plant based on that kill capacity instead operate the plant. And, and I'm not, and they're doing this already, but, but increasingly focus on where the margin is in that plant. And that's down there where that further processing is and then align the slaughter capacity to that. Is there any, um, push from imports to come in to since demand has been good is there been any increase in imports and speaking of imports i'm just sort of curious for the listeners out there what are the key countries where we do get beef imported into the u.s well it has increased and our key the key countries that we import from are uh brazil australia new zealand and and we do we do buy from canada as well but you know, Brazil has increasingly become a a larger player in our in this import market, and 
And of course, when they and well as well as you know Uruguay and 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 Argentina, we've picked up because because they have they have got a a share of the of the of the non tariff rate quota. So and that's kind of been over the last few years. But primarily, our you know our the biggest player in our in our import market is is been Australia and, and New Zealand, and we're primarily obviously that's that's importing grinding, lean grinding beef. And because uh, we simply don't have the capacity or the ability to produce, particularly where we're at right now after this herd liquidation and our cow slaughter is down, down 13% this year, our beef cow, beef cow slaughter. And so when we pull our, our cow slaughter down that much, well, then that's that lean, lean grinding beef that yep. production of lean grinding beef also comes down, and therefore we pick up that pick up the difference from, you know, mostly from uh, Australia, and New Zealand. But it's it's interesting because when you put China in the mix of a of a as a big importer, then that it creates a situation where you're kind of playing off of you know Brazil's there and and Australia, and, but China will buy from them as well. And then that creates a situation where are they going to sell to China or are they going to sell to the United States? Yep. And and part of that has to do obviously with the you know on the exchange rates and the and the, the dollar has started to uh, you know is, is now strengthening again, and so that you take high beef prices on our export side, but also it works both ways. But when when they're selling or 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 they're buying. The exchange rate plays into into how that you know the price of the of the, of the meat. So, and I was just curious, um, you know, on the dairy side, it seems like, and and you know this a whole lot better than I do, but it seems like Holsteins and those type of cows, uh, some of the dairies are now starting to maybe um, uh, sex more males because they can make money you know, processing the mail as, as, as really hamburger and whatever else is, is that true or do I have that wrong? Well, you know, we've always had, the, we, we went through a period with the dairy industry when they were on the sex semen that they were really selecting for the, for the heifers, for replacement heifers. And that's, that's kind of changed somewhat now, but there's always been bull calves there. And what are you going to do with the bull calves? And probably I talked to the, to the, uh, Dairy Heifer and Calf Association at their at their convention in Wisconsin here several years ago, and and that kind of the re reason why they had me there was to talk about this very issue, and the, the dairymen really needed to look at you know here's here is another real opportunity and a source of income if you look at these if you look at these calves as a as the opportunity for for income as opposed to just, you know, a byproduct. Right. And so, uh, you know, what, what a lot of these dairies have done on their final, on their final breeding of that cow, you know, they're, they're crossing to a beef breed, obviously. And that, and that has created another source of, I mean, that's a, that's a real, a very viable, you know, addition to our, you know, to our overall beef production. And then of course, over the last, you know, a year as they also liquidated herds because of their the the losses in the 
dairy yeah. industry with these milk prices down. Well, then there's there's fewer replacements being brought in, and and so we've just kind of increased that number of those dairy dairy uh, beef cross calves. And you know we've asked, we've kind of looked at those numbers and estimated them, and it's probably somewhere around four million when you when you kind of figure it up. So it's I mean it's a that's a decent number of cattle that you're adding into the overall system into the into production. Yeah. So again, for the listeners, if that's 4 million, what is the total number of, of cattle that are processed in a year in the U.S. then? Yeah, roughly around 30. Okay. 30 million. So, so that, so this year we'll do our, well, yeah, our steering, our, our fed cattle, our steering heifer slaughter will be about 26 million and our, our total, my estimate for our total commercial cattle slaughter will be about 33 million. Okay. okay. And then that excess is what cows being slaughtered yeah. and so on. Yeah. We'll, we'll slaughter roughly about oh, nearly 7 million cows this year. Okay. And uh, the bulls, they're, they're, they're hardly worth anything, are they? <laughs> well, they, they still figure into the equation, you know, that's. <laughs> yeah. That's, that, that's not the best meat of all time. So. Um... Well, it's grind, you know. It's grind. It's grind. Yeah. You know, one thing I would bring up too on our, and this this kind of fits into the, you know, into this analysis of, of lean grind because as you make ground beef, you've got the you've got the lean component and the fat component, yeah. and and if you get to the very basics, it's it's basically ninety percent lean, and you make they they blend out with 50 percent trim and. And you you blend to about a seventy eight percent blended ham, uh, hamburger, right? For ground, ground beef, but you know that's that's also changed, and and we're looking at there's more and more utilization and and use of the uh, or use of the all the potential grinding or you know ground beef items that could come off of fed cattle. And that, and they've really you know fit more into the equation. Of course, we've always ground chucks, but there's all there's trim and there's it's just a whole lot of different you know opportunities there. But at any rate, what I was going to say was that typically we always looked at you know these cows, these called cows, and particularly the dairy cows for that those nineties, that ninety percent lean. Yeah. Well, well, most of the dairy cows now that they, they won't. You, it's not nineties. You you're getting 75 soft 75 or 80 percent lean off these cows so what that does it increases our if we're going to continue to blend with the with the lean grind then we have to look for other sources and that goes to this import equation there okay okay and and because the lean on them is is gone down is because they've been breeding them again with some of the more of the the beef breeds versus the cattle breeds is that yeah. is that what's well, causing it? Well, with is re, with regard to the cows, they're just in better condition when they're called out of the herd. Okay, 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 and that probably makes sense a little bit in that you know they have been liquidating and and so the you know if they weren't liquidating, they'd be keeping those cows longer and so on and so forth. So yeah, well, well uh, John, we'll go ahead and take a break for a sponsor message here, and then. Uh, uh, we'll come back and uh, ask a few other questions of you. Okay. Uh, 
How many years away is the long run for a farmer? Five years? Ten years? Top producers like Hans Reinchi, a blue diamond farming company in Jessup, Iowa, know RoboAgri Finance shares his enduring vision for the future. Whether it's building our grain site, or if it's purchasing the next field, we're able to turn to Robo as a trusted partner to help us get financing to make those generational decisions. With unmatched financial capacity, local relationship managers, and a global network of sector experts to offer market guidance, Robo Agri Finance provides enterprising farmers with a personalized approach to lending and financial services. Growing a better world together, Robo Agri Finance. Welcome back, everyone, to the Top Producer Podcast. I am Paul Neefer, your host, and uh, we're going to rejoin our conversation with John here. Um, you know, we've had a great discussion on on the beef industry, the hog industry. Now we're going to talk a little bit about you personally, a little bit. Uh, uh, in your career, who would you view as maybe one or two of your mentors that you've had? Well, probably in my in, in what I currently do, one would be my 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 old partner in Sterling Marketing, Ron Drain, who came out of the, I worked with Ron at the Hellman Group when I first went there to work. He was a, he was a, uh, a vice president. And I don't know if, you know, people who've been around for a long time are familiar with the Hellman Group. It goes way back to, Bill Helming started what was called Livestock Business Advisory Services. And if you go way back, Bill Helming was one of the, one of the creators of Cattlefax. Mm, with the okay. CBA, but uh, anyway, Ron came out of the out of the packing industry. His his father, L. Drain, was the CEO of uh, Armor Meats back in the nineteen seventies. Okay, okay, and so and and that's that's why we ended up with buying Sterling Marketing from from L. Drain because when he retired, that's what he did. He did management consulting for the industry. So I the, the 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 amount of time that I spent with Ron and just you know gaining an understanding of the of the packing industry was I mean it was obviously it, it's key to what I do today and 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 the and then of course it's carried on that I've been around clients and spent time in in packing plants with clients over the years and and had conversations and and you know it's just allowed me to be able to you know, expand on that. But Ron was a, obviously a big, a big, uh, had a lot to do with that. So, okay. uh, you know, in the, in the, in the, in the actual beef production part of this in the cattle industry, I, you know, I guess I, I go back to my, my first employer in Sheridan, uh, who I worked for and, and I just, you know, he, he taught me a lot and gave me the basics of, of you know, of what goes on on the ranch and 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 cattle and and all that. And then I just took an ex extended, and his name was Vaughn Cresswell. He owned the he, uh, he owned the Bone Arrow Ranch up in Arvada, Wyoming. And then, so then I kind of went on with that. Then as I went to work for bigger bigger operations and bigger ranches, then you know because I've. Obviously, when I worked at the padlock, they 
I think at that time they were, I don't think, I know they were running around 18,000 cows. And then I worked at the IL ranch down in, in northern Nevada. And at that time, the IL was running around 5,000 cows. And so it's kind of been a, it's kind of been a mixed bag of a whole lot of things. And when you put it all together, you know, you, yep. Yep. you end up with something. <laughs> okay. And then, uh, you know, you, you spend a fair amount of time and work, but do you have any hobbies? I I fly fish. <clears throat> That's mm. one of my my and then my my wife and I we like to we go down to Nevada and go we have a ATV so we go side by side down in, in Nevada and we spend time with our grandkids obviously and 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 do that but it's I she, she I I like what I do and I continue to work but I've got I've got my I've got the situation now where I can I can play as play more than I have in the past as well as work. So yep. what uh what river do you like to fly fish on? Well we the the Wahi River here in 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 eastern in uh eastern Oregon, which is one of the top fly fly fishing rivers in, in Oregon actually. It gets gets a little crowded at times, but that we fish that and then we we fish some of the some of the other rivers, the the mountain, the north fork of the mountain here and and then we were over to the Deschutes River this summer and, and you know tried our hand a little fly fishing on the Deschutes over in central Oregon. Yep. So it's kind of a it's it's interesting what's over the last three years with the with the COVID and the pandemic and you know, just I think we all see it. The number of people that have actually got out and got out in the woods and 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 recreated over the last in the last three years that there's just so many more people now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I lived in Bend, Oregon for about nine years. So I've been on the Deschutes many times. Uh, I remember one time we had a friend that had a, a raft. So we'd go rafting on the Deschutes there just uh, uh, north of Sun River coming into Bend. And uh, one time, yeah, he forgot to blow up the raft with enough air. So we hit, uh, oh, I'm trying to remember the name of the rapid, but it's a class four rapid. And and basically the the raft in the middle, it, it both edges came up and came together and we're all flying around, but it was sort of fun. Nobody got hurt. So that was the key thing. But uh, you know, and, we were fished on the, uh, on the Salmon River through Riggins, Idaho up here on a, but fishing out of a drift boat. Yep. That, and there's there are some rapids on that river too that'll make you, you know, kind of hold on to the side of the boat. <laughs> I'll put it that way. <laughs> make you pucker up a little bit. So yeah. it's like uh, like uh, the combines or the hills that I used to farm with my dad on combines. There was definitely a few of those that would make me pucker up yeah. at times. So but, yeah, we our our story on that when I first went up to the University of Idaho and another guy and I we were both from Sheridan. And and we decided, well, we need to go out and get, get a job. So we're going to go out and see if we can farm and and, and, and run some equipment for these guys because we both have been, had enough experience. And I yeah. got out there and I said, you know, I, I'm not very excited about getting on these hills. <laughs> I remember one time, um, and I think that ground is, and no, I don't think it's in CRP now, but I remember one time, of course, we used two and a half ton trucks, you know, 50 years ago and I'm driving the truck along and suddenly, and I'm on a 40% slope with the truck. And I, I, I just turned the wheel enough that the 
wheels on the uphill side came up off the ground about two feet and then went bang back down on the ground. Yeah. Uh, believe me, I had to check my underwear after that one. Yeah, so, yeah but uh, but uh, well, good. Is there is there anything that keeps you up at night, or uh, or are you a pretty good sleeper? Oh, I, I I'm one of these people that if I if when I when I get done at the end of the day, if there's something that's not finished that needed to be done, then I'm gonna I'm gonna wake up at one o'clock in the morning and worry about it. <laughs> and, and I've done that for years and. You know, it doesn't matter whether I was on the ranch or, or sitting in my office here doing what I do now. It's, it, I'm, I'm not, I'm not a person who likes to leave those things undone, but I, you know, there's only so many hours in a day. So, yeah. yeah. The, the one thing I notice is I get older. Um, you know, when I'm at home, I go to sleep. I don't get up to pee generally, but when I'm on the road, I get up three or four times and I have no idea what causes that but it's almost consistent when i'm on the road i have to get up three times and i'm like what's going on because at home i'm you know i don't get up at all so uh, uh but i guess that might be tmi for our listeners out there so i probably should move on but uh, <laughs> and, then, and then what is uh what is your definition of success in ranching or farming or or business well i think and i and, and this i've done this personally i think that to look ahead and have and and set goals, and I don't and doesn't I, I think it's you know whether you're personal or in business, and you set goals and you work towards achieving those goals, and and you have to you know I'm a firm believer, particularly on these ranchers with these ranches, and I've done quite a bit of consulting with individual ranchers, but you, you've got you've got to understand the numbers and you've got to understand where you sit financially and it's not just going into the bank one time a year or whatever but it's got you've got to you've got to understand it analyze the numbers and then set goals to achieve and i i'm one of these people that i've gone way back to when i was in high school i was always a i always set goals for myself and and uh and you know, it seems to me it, it, it to me it's important. And I yeah. we taught it, my wife and I, we taught our kids that and and our kids have all done, you know, you know, pretty well. And I think that's you know part of it that they that they also set goals and they work towards, you know, achievement and and have something to look look towards working towards. And so I think to me that's you know, that's a pretty important part of, of business or you know, personal life. Yep. Totally agree. Well, again, John, thanks for taking time out of your day. This has been very interesting and, uh, and maybe, uh, six months from now or whatever, we'll, we'll do another podcast to see what's happening with the beef and hog industry. Yeah. It sounds, sounds very good. I, I enjoyed having the opportunity to visit with you, Paul, okay. and, and pick out some of my ideas on what's going on in the industry. Perfect. Again, this is the top producer podcast and I am Paul Neeper, your host, signing off.